0: And if you happen to be in the kansas city area anytime soon we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person again thanks for joining us today and we hope that you enjoy today's message we are in week three of a series called everything goes south and we've been for several weeks now through the prophets of the old testament of the bible And we're in there for a while because if you look at the Old Testament and you pull out all of the prophets, that's a huge chunk of a huge chunk of the Bible. And so we're in this series here on the southern kingdom called Judah. It's still the Jewish people. It's still God's people in the southern half, the southern kingdom of Judah. And so we're in week three of that series today. And today's prophet... Uh, is probably the earliest of all of the southern prophets, probably by a wide margin. We we assume we don't know a lot about this prophet, but we it seemed as if he is much earlier. But I've saved him for the middle of the series because one of the main points of emphasis from this prophet today is going to tie in with a new testament event that coincides with what today is on the church calendar if you're not familiar with what that is after today you will be and we're going to talk about today the prophet joel so that's who we're looking at today joel he's one of the earlier prophets probably 800 bc is around the range we most scholars would think that he prophesied which is very early in the southern kingdom Uh, And it's a similar start to Joel, as we talked about almost every week with the prophets. God's people have strayed from him. They have sinned against him. They are not really inclined to go back to him. And so God will send these prophets, and in in this case, he sends Joel to warn them of coming judgment. And so if you look at, we won't read anything in Joel chapter 1, but I'll reference it. If you look at something unique about Joel's prophecy is when he talks about God's judgment in the beginning of his prophecy... He talks about a locust plague. Now, he talks about different kinds of locusts doing different types of things to different crops. So, there's two ways that this can be viewed. It's possible he's talking about a literal physical locust infestation that will happen on the southern kingdom. There's not really a record that we have of that happening, but it's possible he's being very specific and very literal. I would say it's more plausible that this is simply a figurative term. Most prophecy is figurative, right? When you read stuff, that's why we get freaked out and confused. What is this six-headed monster? And what is this six-winged creature? And what does this number mean? Like, So most prophecy is not literal in that sense, even though he uses a literal animal to describe coming judgment. It seems more likely he's talking about future judgment from a neighboring nation, which will be Babylon, which we'll talk about over the next few weeks after this week so Babylon it'll be 250 something years or so before this happens so he's way out in the future he's definitely a visionary okay Uh, and so he tells them destruction's coming and so he wants them as we'll see in just a second he God gives them this warning of destruction and judgment to hopefully have their hearts turned back to him to avoid this judgment okay So uh, after he talks about this invading nation or this locust plague in Joel chapter one, let's look at Joel chapter two here, uh, verse 12, and then we'll see what God says after he pronounces judgment. So, and this is really why he's pronouncing it again. This is Joel two, verse 12. So Joel says, that is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief But tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. So, again, chapter one seems bad punishment, judgment, all that coming up. But then Joel gets into it in the middle of chapter two. Here's why God is saying that he wants basically you to be scared straight. You ever seen those, maybe those daytime? TV shows back in the day where they would have the drill sergeant come to these young little kid punks who are not being nice to their moms, and he gets in their face, I'm going to scare you straight. It's kind of what God's doing here with Joel, you know. (laughs) He's talking about destruction, locust plague, famine, not good stuff, and he says, here's why. Because if you really take me seriously that I can and will do this, maybe you'll turn back to me instead and live the kind of life that you want to live. And I love this, these two verses here because a lot of times people will put God into two categories, Old Testament God and New Testament God. And they'll say, New Testament God is lovey-dovey and so nice and full of grace. And Old Testament God is wrathful and vengeful and angry and destructive. And I would say, read Joel chapter two and come back and we'll talk because that's not what we see here. The, the point of this warning is to get them to, he says, turn your hearts back to me right? He says God is merciful. God is compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's filled with unfailing love. He's eager to relent and not to punish. God, even in the Old Testament, God's not looking to squash bugs. That's not what he's trying to do. He's trying to find people who will honor him and worship him and have relationship and communion with him. That's always been his heart. It's not just that after we turn to the New Testament, he changes into a different person. No, he's always been the same. And so God shows even here in Joel that heart that he always has. And so God promises, though, as we keep reading in this chapter 2, he promises restoration to his people as they return to him. There's this benefit that they get as they return back to him. He even says things like, your pastures will be green again, the trees will be full of fruit again, the rain will fall on your crops again. He even says you'll have all the food you want. As you turn back to me, his blessings will flow to his people. So there are physical promises that God makes to his people through Joel. But the one thing I want to focus on is near the end of chapter 2, there is a spiritual promise that God makes through Joel that is not seen for over 800 years, but it finally comes to pass, and we'll talk about that. So Joel chapter 2, skip down to verse number 28. And here is kind of the thrust of where we're going to go today. Joel chapter 2, 28. He says, then after doing all those things, all those physical things, he says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike, and I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For some on Mount Zion in Jerusalem will escape just as the Lord has said. These will be among the survivors whom the Lord has called. So what we've just read here, we see again in the New Testament. Now, we see it in two different places. If we split this up, these verses up into two sections, some of what we just read, we see again in Revelation, okay? You know, moon turned to blood and all this kind of stuff we see in Revelation. So there's still that sort of strange, mystical, prophetic piece to what he's saying here that we still don't quite have figured out just yet. But the part he starts out with, we also see in the New Testament in the book of Acts, So we fast forward from Joel 800 years, we have Jesus Christ who appears on the earth, he lives, he's crucified, he's buried, and then he is resurrected. After his resurrection, he spends about 40 days with a lot of his disciples and followers and just kind of teaches them and hangs out with them. And then he's going to ascend back into heaven. So it's going to come full circle. He comes from heaven to earth, he dies, is resurrected, then he goes back from earth to heaven. So before Jesus is ascended, he gets his disciples together, his followers together, and he tells them, he says, go to Jerusalem and wait there. And when he tells them to wait for he says, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that's in Acts chapter 1. He promised, he's promised them for weeks and weeks and weeks now the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. He's going to come, and we'll talk about that here in a few minutes. But he promises them the Holy Spirit, and he says, go and wait in Jerusalem. So there's about 120 of these followers of Jesus who gather together in this one place, they call it the upper room, and they're here in Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, for a Jew, there actually is a Jewish festival happening while they're waiting. It's called the Festival of Weeks. And so they're here, and so not only are they here, but there are Jewish people from all over who have gathered for one of the larger um sort of gatherings of the Jewish people in the capital city of Jerusalem. One of the biggest feasts and festivals on their calendar is happening right now as they're waiting. So they've been waiting in this room, 120 of these believers, for about 10 days while this festival is going on around them. And in Acts chapter 2, here is what happens. It says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. "...suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them." So the reason that we're looking at this event in Acts chapter 2 is because today is Pentecost Sunday. Some of you even on your calendars, it'll say it on there, depending upon what calendar you have or what app you use. A lot of it will have that on there, even still today. So what we're celebrating today, so here's the reason. So the Feast of Weeks that they were celebrating, the Jewish people were celebrating in Acts 2, was 50 days after Passover, their biggest, grandest celebration. So what happens then, on that exact, in that exact same time period, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus on that Easter Sunday, the promise of the Holy Spirit came. And so what Jesus had been telling them forever and ever and ever happened on this day. So you would say, okay, well, I get why you're talking about Acts 2 on Pentecost Sunday. It makes sense. But why are we talking about that in Joel? Well, the reason these are connected is because after this event that we just read happens, Peter gets up and preaches his first ever public sermon, okay? And what he does in this sermon is he quotes Joel chapter 2. So Peter makes this connection from the scriptures from 800 years before. He's saying, hey guys, what we just experienced is not only what Jesus had promised us, but what the prophet Joel prophesied about 800 years ago, we have just lived through that moment. And so he quotes, you know, your sons and daughters will prophesy, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. He's saying, hey, that, that, that has just happened to us. So that's where this connection comes together on this Pentecost Sunday. The Holy Spirit came in power to inaugurate the birth of the church. This moment at this event was world-changing. So what what I want to do for the next few minutes is make four observations about this connection, about what I'm going to call Holy Spirit reversals. So what we're going to see is what the Holy Spirit started on that day of Pentecost almost 2,000 years ago that was prophesied about almost 3,000 years ago is still having effect today. We'll see the effects it had in Scripture, and we'll see how it affects us here and now. So we're going to look at some Holy Spirit reversals um, this morning. So here's the first one that we see. The first Holy Spirit reversal is that the Holy Spirit goes from can't-do to can-do. The first Holy Spirit reversal is we go from can't-do to can-do. And Peter is a perfect example of this on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So Peter is kind of known as he wants to be the guy in charge, but he doesn't really want to be a leader. You know, you never know anybody like that? They want to have the control but don't want to actually lead, uh, maybe in the way that they should. That was Peter. Peter. Peter had what we might call foot and mouth disease. He liked to give his opinion really quickly all the time. Here's what I'm thinking. Boy, he doesn't think it through. He's not considerate. He doesn't care what the audience or the setting is. He's just going to say what he thinks, how he thinks right now. So not, maybe not the best person to get up after this event happens to kind of explain what's just going on, but that's who, it do, that's who does it. And we also see from Peter that he followed Jesus fairly faithfully but also pretty privately. Because when, when the first time he's got the opportunity to stick his neck out for Jesus as he's being on trial for his life and Peter's outside waiting and he's recognized by the people, hey, you're one of his followers. The first time that Peter has an opportunity to really stand for his man, Jesus, he caves. He denies even knowing Jesus personally. So this is the guy who could not have done what he did because the Holy Spirit empowered him to do what he could not do. So he went from can't do to can do. Peter is this guy who you would never want to get up and speak in front of people because you really need to look at his notes, make sure that he's going to say the right thing and not make anybody upset or not say something stupid. But Peter now, because the Holy Spirit fell and empowered him, now he went from can't do to can do. Now he had what it took to be the leader he needed to be. Now he gets up and preaches publicly about this Jesus that just a few weeks ago he denied even knowing. This is the same guy now he makes thoughtful connections and thoughtful observations. Again, it's Peter who connects the dots. Acts 2 is Joel 2. It's the same thing. It's happening right now. Peter is the one that makes that connection. And then we see, as Joel promised in Joel 2, he says, you'll have visions and dreams. We see that in the book of Acts in a great way. So the can't do to can do here is that the Holy Spirit allowed people in the book of Acts and still today, allows people to know things they could otherwise never know and to understand things they could never otherwise understand. So in you look at Acts, both chapter 9 and chapter 10, just in these two chapters alone, there are four visions that the Holy Spirit gives to people that have ripple effect that even affect us to this day. So in, in Acts chapter 9, there's a man named Saul, who we maybe know better as Paul. He has a vision of Jesus himself. So he's, on his, he's actually on his way to the city of Damascus to arrest Christians, followers of Jesus, and while he's there, a bright light shines, knocks him on his backside in the middle of the road, and he has a vision of Jesus himself. And in this moment, everything about his life, his future, is changed. He goes from persecuting Christians to building churches because of this vision he had of Jesus. At the same time that Paul has this vision in the middle of the road, there's another man named Ananias who has a vision Of this man named Saul. And the Holy Spirit speaks to him in this vision and says, Hey, Ananias, I've got a really important job for you. He's like, Oh, what is it? What is it, Lord? Tell me. He's like, Hey, you know Saul, the persecutor of people like you? Yeah, you need to go find him. He's in town. You need to go find him. And he's blinded by this light that he's just seen. You need to put your hands on him and let him receive his sight back. And understandably Ananias is going to be a little standoffish about this idea now that he knows the details is this a trap is this a trick am I going to be cornered with this murderer of Christians and I'm the next one on his hit list like that but Ananias goes with the vision and he meets Saul who is blinded just as the Holy Spirit told him in the vision he puts his hands on, he says, Brother Saul, right? So he's making this connection. Okay, I'm going to go out and live limb and assume we're on the same team now for whatever reason. And Saul receives his sight and then everything in the history of the Christian world that he helps to really create changes. The very next chapter in Acts chapter 10, a very similar thing. We'll come back to why this is so important here in a couple minutes. So in Acts chapter 10, a man named Cornelius, who is not a Jew, He's called a God-fearer, so he's sort of, he's a Gentile, a non-Jew who's kind of bought into sort of the Jewish religion, monotheism, that sort of thing. So he has a vision, and he he doesn't know who this is, but in this vision, the Holy Spirit tells him, hey, there's a man named Peter, you need to have a guy go out and find him and bring him to you to tell you about Jesus. And so Cornelius is like, I don't understand much of what you're telling me, but I'm going to go with that. So he has uh, one of his servants go out to try to find this guy named Peter somewhere in town at the same time in acts chapter 10 peter is having his own vision just in time for cornelius to come and get him to bring him to his home peter is on the rooftop of his house and all of a sudden he has a vision of this huge sheet that is holding all of these unclean animals according to jewish tradition and in this vision god tells him to kill and eat these animals And of course, Peter's going to be reluctant like a good Jew. I can't eat these animals. These are unclean. I would be be sinning against the, I'd be breaking the law if I killed and ate these animals. And God tells him in this vision, whatever I have made clean is now clean. So this vision doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense until Peter goes back downstairs, knock on the door, guy at the door says, hey, are you Peter? Yeah, I'm Peter. Hey, I'm here from a guy named Cornelius and he wants you to go to his house and tell him about Jesus. The only problem is Cornelius is not Jewish, as we've already established, so Peter would be breaking the law to enter the home of a Gentile, but he's just had a vision where God has said, if I've said it's clean, it's clean. So the vision is to represent Peter getting the okay to preach the gospel to non-Jews. It, it, it revolutionizes his way of thinking. Now, to be, to be fair, Peter has a hard time with this later. He has some stumble. Like, he's, his whole worldview is now shattered in a moment, and he's just got to go with it. So it's going to be hard for any of us to act in that way. But Peter goes in. He preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his whole house. They all put their faith in Christ. They are all baptized. They all receive the Holy Spirit as well. You can read about it in Acts chapter 10. And this sort of, again, revolutionizes everything. So again, we see Peter specifically goes from can't do to can do because the Holy Spirit helps him. We see in these visions that these people know things, see things, understand things, and do things that they could not do except for the Holy Spirit enabling them to now do those things. So let me ask you, what is that thing that you cannot do? When you think about something that God has maybe placed in your heart or a direction that you feel like he's leading you in, Are you saying, I can't do that? Let me encourage you, with the Holy Spirit's help and power, you can go from can't do to can do. Just like Peter, just like Paul, just like these other people that we've talked about. Maybe you would say, I can't resist temptation. Well, with the Holy Spirit's power, you can. Maybe you would say, I can't faithfully follow Jesus. I'm going to get it wrong. True, but with the Holy Spirit's power, you can continue to faithfully follow Jesus. Maybe you would say, I feel like I need to share my faith with a certain person at work or with a neighbor, but I can't do that. The Holy Spirit will take you from can't do to can do. The Holy Spirit will lead you into the right situation at the right time to the right people with the right words to tell them what you need to tell them to share the good news about Jesus with anybody. You can go from can't-do to can-do. Maybe you'd even say, you know what, I've got big decisions I've got to make, and I don't think I can make the correct decisions, the right decisions. With the Holy Spirit's power and wisdom, he can take you from can't to can. He can help you and lead you and guide you to make those decisions that otherwise you could not make on your own. The Holy Spirit leads us from can't-do to can-do. Here's a second reversal that we'll look at uh, briefly, and it's this. The Holy Spirit takes us from inward to outward. So go back to Joel chapter 2. The original audience of Joel chapter 2 are the Jewish people, right? God's chosen Jewish people. There's a very specific audience that this is directed to, there's a specific reader that this is about. This is not universal in scope at the time of Joel. But the event in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost changes that. It goes from an inward um, cultural religious movement to an outward universal movement. Jesus sort of started that train a going in his ministry. And then when he, that's why he promises the Holy Spirit, because he's like, I'm, I'm still, even though I am divine, I'm still just one human body. I can only do so much in this way. I've got to send the third person of a Trinity down to earth because he can do what I can. He can go everywhere all at once and do a work that I could never do. So that's why he sends the Holy Spirit. So on the day of Pentecost, it goes from an an inward idea to an outward idea. Um, And so let's go back to these two visions that we just looked at in Acts 9 and 10, or these four visions, these two stories in these two chapters. We see that. in, In Acts 9, we see Paul with his life being changed and Cornelius giving him his sight back. So this event, again, changed Paul's entire life. He goes from a very devout religious Jew. I'm, an, I'm a high part of this inner circle of these blessed people. It's just this little social club, this little uh, cultural club here that is Judaism. But instead, what Christ does when he meets Christ on that road to Damascus, he now says, hey, I'm gonna send you out to those who are not Jewish. It changes the entire trajectory of the world. Same thing with Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10. He opens the door for this inward movement to now become an outward explosion of a movement. Jesus even tells his disciples in in Matthew 28, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So that was always the idea. That was always the goal. Go into all the world, Not not just your neighborhood, not just your Jewish neighbors and friends, but all the world and preach the gospel. So that was the command, but it took that day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 event, to empower the people to go out into all the world. They had the command, they had the idea, but they needed the power from the Holy Spirit. And that's one thing about the Holy Spirit. I think we get, we'll talk about this a little bit. We get hung up on sort of the outward expression of this event, or the outward expression of the Holy Spirit, and that's good, and that's appropriate, and that's biblical as we've already seen. But the purpose of the Holy Spirit is not strictly spiritual gifts. Now, the Holy Spirit does give spiritual gifts, and they are powerful and effective and useful and good, but that's not the purpose. Jesus tells his disciples the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to be a witness for him. So we need the Holy Spirit's power to be that witness in the world. And that's really part of our mission here at the church, to help people find love, hope, and life in Jesus. One of our core values is we are missional. So while we gather once or twice a week in this building together, that's not the point, right? That's not, the mission is not to gather together. The mission is to scatter and to make a difference. And to do that, we have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, "You, you have to have this power to do this job. You have to have this to do it effectively. And so the Holy Spirit helps us to go out, not just to be an inward movement that's insular, because that will die and decay eventually, but to go outward with the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit does. But then here's the third reversal, and it will sound very counterintuitive to what I just said, because the third reversal the Holy Spirit is we go from outward to inward. So we just went from inward to outward, but now we're going from outward to inward. So let's read part of uh, Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2. It's near the end of the chapter. Acts 2 verse 37. uh, Peter says this, So he's preached a bunch of his sermon and then he takes a break and it says this, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. So it's biblical to preach for a long time, just saying, okay. Peter continued to preach for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. Can you imagine how long that baptism service took? 3,000 Dunkin' dunkin Donuts going on here in Jerusalem, all right? So we're going from, uh, from outward now to inward. Think about this for just a second. Joel, in his prophecy, says, Turn to God outward, and then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's inward. So it's outward to inward. Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and then Peter's able to say, "Turn to God," and then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is the distinction between religion and relationship. I know this gets talked about a lot, and sometimes we use it as a cliche, but it is, it is real, and here's how that works. So there's law-based religion that is outward. It's mainly about appearance. It's mainly about ritual. It's mainly about change on the outside or do the things on the outside, and maybe the inside will change. Maybe I'll get better. Maybe I'll feel closer to God. Maybe not. But if I do the right things religiously on the outside, that's all that matters. That's not what we see here in the New Testament. Even in the Old Testament, it's really not completely correct. But even in the Old Testament, there were dietary laws. Those are outward. There are washing ceremonies in the law. Outward. Clothing laws. Hair, you know, you have to have a certain style of haircuts, you know, uh, that those are outward things. But the point has always been inward. It's always been inward. And that's a love-based relationship, not a law-based religion, but a love based relationship is where the spirit changes us on the inside and that results in outward change. We ch- we're changed inside first and that re- it reveals itself outward. So again, we talked about the purpose of the Holy Spirit is not spiritual gifts, but power. Yes, so here's a couple other things to consider. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues. Now, we see that in Acts 2, we see it in Acts 10, we see it all over the New Testament. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm saying that's never was the purpose. That was never the designed purpose. Not to have spiritual gifts, not to speak in tongues. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is not tongues, but truth. Even Jesus says this in the book of John to his disciples. He says, when I send the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. So it comes back to the Holy Spirit there is to help us to live life. The Holy Spirit is there to help us to navigate all of the questions and issues and problems and roadblocks and ups and downs of life. He guides us into all truth. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is not supernatural signs, although that is part of what the Holy Spirit does, but it's, again, not the ultimate purpose. Is not supernatural signs, but it's a seal of our salvation. So Paul, in Romans 8, he says, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So one of the main purposes of the Holy Spirit is to help us to remember Yeah, I'm imperfect and I'm fallen and I'm still in need of grace, but I'm also still a child of God. Because maybe you struggle in that area. You're always on edge about your salvation. You're always worried about, am I really saved? Have I done too much? Have I sinned too bad? Have I gotten off track too far? The Holy Spirit, one of the main purposes here, Paul says, is to help you to just know, have this confidence. Have this assurance of your salvation. So that's one of the main purposes here that we see from the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not about keeping rules outwardly. That's never what it was designed to be, and the Holy Spirit shows us this. This day of Pentecost in Joel 2 shows us that it's about pursuing a relationship. It's not about keeping rules. It's about pursuing a relationship. It goes from outward to inward. And it says here in Acts 2 that they, these people were baptized. That's what baptism is, right? Because salvation is an inward work. You can't really, I mean, you can't inwardly, I can't show you where, where my soul is. I can't show you that Jesus lives right here. You know, I can't, it, it's, it's an inward thing that we can't really show. But we do show it outwardly in our lives, and really through through baptism. But again, those aren't the things that save us either. It's our faith. It's this inward thing that is the point this the holy spirit solidifies the work that jesus began to move from outward religion to an inward relationship here's the fourth and final reversal that we'll talk about for a minute and this one i must confess is not related to joel specifically but it's maybe my favorite one this is so i think i'm just a geek i'm a nerd so if you're a nerd you might enjoy this too if you're not just bear with me for five minutes, okay? Here we go. Here's the fourth reversal that we see. We go from divided to united. Again, this parallel is not in Joel. It goes even further back than Joel, okay? We have to go all the way to Genesis chapter 11 to see where this parallel comes in. So Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. Maybe you're familiar with that story. So just after the flood of Noah, Civilization starts to kind of rebuild again and then we read in Genesis 11 of this one city this one town trying to build this large tower and what we're going to see here is that Acts chapter 2 the day of Pentecost that event is a reversal of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Okay so here we go let's read this story real quick Genesis 11 1 through 4 to get an idea of the story here so it says this now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. That's actually ancient Babylon is another term for that city. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So if you know how the story ends, it doesn't end too well. People try to build this tower really tall. For whatever reason, God looks down and sees their tower, is not happy with their tower, and then he confuses their, it says they all had one language, right? One common language. So it says that God comes down and confuses them, basically creates all these languages that we have now so that they can't continue to build this tower because there's no Google translator at the time. So they can't just, you know, tell their neighbor, hey, what are you saying? So they all scatter and move to the different parts of the earth, and the tower is never completed. Now, typically when we think about the Tower of Babel, you probably, like me, have an image in your head like this. I've got one image here for you. Really tall, kind of, you know, tower type of structure. Can I just blow your mind for a second? What if, what if the Tower of Babel is not this, but it's actually this? This is a ziggurat that's still in modern-day Iran. It is highly likely most well not most but there are there are many Old Testament scholars who would say the Tower of Babel is most likely more like this image of a ziggurat with the purpose of a ziggurat. Now, if you don't know what that is, play it on Scrabble. You can use the Z. It'll get you a lot of points. Okay, so a ziggurat is something like a temple, but not quite. A ziggurat, really, in ancient Near Eastern religious circles, was seen as sort of a portal between the human and the divine. However, may not be in the way that you think. We might think, well, it's for us to get to God. It's the opposite of that. Ziggurats typically in ancient Near Eastern cultures were seen as a way for their gods to get down to them. So there's a specific scholar, there's a few of them, and there's this idea, it's called the great symbiosis. So the idea is that these ancient Near Eastern uh, religions and cultures would have basically a codependent relationship between them and the gods, or them and their god for that culture. So basically how the story would go is, if you look at other creation stories or myths and other legends in the world, the gods would be self-sufficient for a while, then they just get tired of serving themselves, so that was the purpose of them creating humans, was to serve them. So then the humans that they made, knowing this information somehow, would build these ziggurats. So you see this kind of image at the top. There's sort of this uh, place where it would be sort of the house for where the God would live, or he could come to live if he wanted to live on earth for a while. So what they would do is they would provide for the God because he's tired of providing for himself. So they'd put food and they'd put other things up there for him to consume. They'd build a house at the top of this thing for him to live. So they would take care of him. But in order for that to happen, the God also knew I've still got to provide rain for the people, for the crops, for the food that I want to eat. I've got to provide fertility for the people to still survive and thrive in the land. So there's this symbiotic or codependent relationship that would happen between a God and the people who would build these types of structures. So if we see here that the Tower of Babel is quite possibly more like this, this would kind of explain why God's not happy with the Tower of Babel. Like, why would he, if people want to come to him, wouldn't that be a good thing? Wouldn't God be pleased? They want to build this tower, and it's, like, it seems that way, but if we see it in this way, I think it it tends to maybe make uh, a bit more sense, because what the people would be doing in this way is they'd be using God rather than worshiping him. See this relationship? They're they're doing these things to God, so he'll do things for them, and they even say, if you look at the text itself, uh, we just read it, they said, let's build this to make a name for ourselves. That's kind of the first mistake that they would make. Really, in building this tower, they're saying, we need to make a way for God to come down to us. Instead of, we think about it going up to him, but that would be the issue here. Um, really, at the heart, I think what they're saying is, what can God do for us? How can he serve our interests? How can he meet our needs? What can, and, that's what, and that's what religion is. What can I do for God, toward God, so he'll do something for me or toward me? never works out well. And this would explain why God is displeased with the tower. He would be saying, wait, 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 you're trying to make your name great. What about my name? Isn't that the whole point here of me being me is my name is great. He would say, I don't need a way to come down. You can, I don't need your stinking tower. I I can come down anytime I want, any way I want. I don't need a, a stair step to get down here. He would also be saying, if this is accurate, I don't serve you. You serve me. We've got this thing backwards, people. And then it would also be this thing where he would say, I'm not like the other gods. I don't need the thing that that they need. I don't do the things that they do for the reasons that you think they do what they do. And so that's why he would be displeased with this tower. But here's where the Pentecost, I'm going to make this connection, I promise. Here's where it comes into play. This event in Acts chapter 2 that we've been looking at today, the day of Pentecost, is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Let me give you some reasons why. Uh, and if, if I go too fast on these reasons real quick, um, you, can, you can holler at me and I'll get them to you this week. So here's a few reasons why this would be a reversal of the Tower of Babel. So the Tower of Babel, everyone's gathered, but then by the end they're all scattered and don't know what to do with each other. But it's the opposite here in the day of Pentecost. So they are scattered. Every, now they are gathered in Jerusalem for this feast, yes, but really it's more of a spiritual gathering of these people that this event doesn't divide them, it unites them. So there were different, you know, groups of Jews or like the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots, like different cliques and groups uh, and different maybe denominations of Judaism that they just would not see to eye. They would not work together. They would not do that. But what the day of Pentecost did was it united Christians, these followers of Jesus, for this one goal, as one family, as one body. We see the Tower of Babel confused the people as they scattered. But the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, it empowered the people instead of confusing them. The Tower of Babel, they tried, remember, they tried to force God to come down. Okay, here's your way down. But instead, on the day of Pentecost, they simply waited for the Holy Spirit to come. They didn't force him. They didn't beg him. They, didn't, they, did, they just waited, as Jesus said, and he came. That's the difference between Babel and Pentecost. Uh, The Tower of Babel event, again, many languages come. They have one, now there's many. What we see here now, the day of Pentecost, all these people are gathered in Jerusalem, this major city where a lot of languages are represented. But what happens? The sign of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 is this one new language that comes into the world. So we see the complete reversal of what we saw at the Tower of Babel. And then here's the final thing that i'll say again the problem with babel is that they were trying to make a name for themselves let's make our name great but instead what we see from the aftermath of acts chapter 2 as you read the rest of acts after this event now after this event at pentecost the people aren't saying let's make a name for ourselves they're saying let's make the name of jesus great so again we see a complete reversal of this idea and so i want that description that we just kind of said here briefly, about what happened on that day of the first century church to describe first century church. So I want us to be a united, empowered people who wait on the Lord, who allow the Holy Spirit to use us in powerful ways so that people can know Jesus and God can be glorified. That's the point of who we are. That's our mission. To do that, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. So we need to allow the Holy Spirit to do what we cannot do, to do a work on the inside of each of us, so that as we come together, we can unite and change the world for the sake of the gospel. That is the true power of the Holy Spirit on this Pentecost Sunday. Let's pray. God, we know that you have great plans. We don't always know what they are, but we know that they're great because you're great. And I I believe that our desire is to be part of those plans. We want to be a participant in what you're doing here in our local community and even around the world. But to do that, effectively, we need the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So it's our prayer today that we would seek the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would seek the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that we would not be afraid of the Holy Spirit or turned off by the Holy Spirit, although there are some strange things that sometimes will accompany the Holy Spirit, but help us to focus on the power and presence and work and person as we pursue the Holy Spirit. So we want to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in us, to strengthen us, to empower us, and to help us. Help us live a life we could never live on our own, to do things we could never do on our own power, to know things by the Holy Spirit's wisdom that we could never know in our own wisdom. Help us to live this life of faith inwardly so that we can come together and change the world outwardly. Help us to focus in on what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives and in this church for the sake of the gospel. So I pray that you would empower us and change us even this week as we're at home and we're at work, we're doing our thing, that we would sense the power and presence of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and in our lives, in us and through us. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.